Uh, so if you have a Bible, turn with me to Jonah. Uh, it's a small little Old Testament book. It's in a, a page 774 in your chair Bible if you need a Bible. Um, if not, I don't know what number your uh, Jonah is in, but it's in there. Uh, so we're going to read uh, Jonah chapter 1, the first couple verses, and then we're going to pray and we'll jump into the sermon uh, this morning. Really looking forward to spending some time in Jonah uh, the next few weeks together. So Jonah chapter 1, we'll read the first three verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you and we humbly submit ourselves to you before your word, um, because in your word is life, and in your word is where you've chose to speak to us most clearly, to reveal yourself, your ways, your will, your commands. And so, Lord, we ask now by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would illuminate our hearts and minds to hear and receive, especially as we begin a new series in Jonah. There's so much to learn from this little prophet uh, that, that we can easily gloss over. And so help us uh, not just be hearers of your word this morning, God, but deceive ourselves, but also be doers as well. So help us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to uh, open uh, this morning with a, a quote from uh, Moby Dick. Uh, you probably read that this week from Herman Melville. Here's what he says in Moby Dick. Shipmates, this book containing only four chapters, four yarns, is one of the smallest strands in the mighty cable of scriptures. Yet what depths of the soul does Jonah's deep sea line sound? What a pregnant lesson to us is this prophet. What a noble thing is that canicle in the fish's belly. How billow-like and boisterously grand. That's right in Moby Dick, if you've ever read Moby Dick, and, and, it, and it captures a little bit of what Jonah really is. It's this small book, it's four chapters. It seems like you know, all we really know it as is this Sunday school, you know, something about a fish, except they only mention the fish in one verse, and yet that becomes the whole story. It's like, I don't know where those story's about, but I do know he ended up in a, in a belly of a fish somehow. Um, and, and it gets regulated, I think, to just this small kind of insignificant book that we can easily gloss over. And I think it has something to do with a little bit of it's the nature of the story. It's kind of interesting and complex and weird, and Jonah seems to be running from God. But it also, I think, has something to do with a little bit of the Old Testament, that any Old Testament book, prophet, right, we kind of, we don't like that, especially if we're doing a, a Bible reading plan of some kind. Maybe you're reading through the scriptures for the year, and, you know, my favorite is, yeah, you do well through Genesis. I got that. Exodus, kind of exciting. Leviticus, not so much. And we start petering out because it's, it's old. It's different from our culture. It's so far removed removed from us. And so we think, well, there's probably nothing that interesting or applicable to me thousands and thousands of years later. A little bit what J.I. Packer said about the spirit of our age, the newer is the truer, only what is recent is decent. Every shift of, of ground is stepped forward and every latest word must be hailed as the last word on its subject. A little bit what C.S. Lewis also said is we have this thing about chronological snobbery. Right? Anything that's old, it has no value for us today. It can't speak to us uh, today. But, but as we, we enter in, and I'm excited to look at Jonah again, because we preached this book in 2011. Many of you weren't even here. Most of you actually weren't. And, and, and I'm looking forward to, to digging in again, because there's so much to learn from this small little book. 
this four chapters of this Old Testament text. And, and, and really, as we've, we've called this, this sermon series, you know, God's, uh, mission, or should say God's mission of mercy, um, it, it really is. It, it reveals a God of mercy. It reveals a God of grace that even though Jonah is one who runs from God, God is still pursuing him and God still has compassion for his people and for his, his world. So, a little orientation about Jonah. Let's look at it, the prophet. So we don't have a lot of information. It just opens right in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call it against, against it, for their evil has come up before him. Well, it's interesting that Jonah's name actually is a Hebrew word for a dove. Uh, it's, a, it's a gentle term of endearment. It's actually the same word we get in Genesis 8.8. If you remember in the flood, when the flood comes, they send out this dove. Remember when they sent out the dove to, to check to see that the waters had receded? Well, that's really what Jonah's name means, that he's, he's this messenger, this one that's, that's to go out. Uh, the, this one that's going, that has a message from God to go tell about something or someone. And so that's what, where we kind of see Jonah's me- mission already lined up is, hey, I want you to go to, to Nineveh. I want you to go to these Gentiles. I want you to go to this place under um, Syrian power and preach and proclaim uh, against their, their evil. Now, what's unique about Jonah is that he doesn't respond in a way that you think an Old Testament Israelite Hebrew prophet should respond. He does the, the exact opposite. Because most of the time, Israel, if you read the Old Testament scriptures, you read the prophets, most of the time, who are the prophets preaching against? They're preaching against God's own people, Israel, calling them back to covenant faithfulness, that you've broken God's commands. You, you, you're not listening to what he says. You're not following through. You're not trusting him, right? So most of the Old Testament prophets were always talking to God's people first. But did you notice that these aren't God's people. Nineveh is not God's people. These are Gentiles. These are people that aren't part of God's covenant. They're people so different than the people that, that Old Testament prophets and, and messengers would typically go to. So that's the, the first thing that we say, well, okay, this is, this is a little different. We're, we're entering into something a little bit different here in Jonah. But secondly, we, we also know from, from Jonah, if we dig around the scriptures a little bit, is that Jonah was already fiercely nationalistic about his own People. He wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles. Well, where, where do I get that from? Well, in 2 Kings, um, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 14, it's about all we get in the Old Testament uh, about Jonah. That's why we don't know that much about him. But we do capture something of who he is. That In, in uh, 2 Kings 14, 23, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he feigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebanath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So Jonah already had a ministry before under this evil king. 
that, that they wanted to secure their borders. They didn't want any Gentiles to come in. So, so the whole mission was, we got to protect our own people. So, so Jonah, when you kind of look at his life, and then you kind of look further into chapter, later in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, you begin to see he is fiercely nationalistic. He is an Israelite. He's a Hebrew. I want nothing to do with Gentiles, non-Hebrews, non-Israelites. So he had served already and already has this kind of in his life been there, done that. So another clue that this mission of Jonah is very different than a typical Old Testament prophet. There's something else going on here. Now also, and we see in verse 2, that we saw that the mission is to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against her, for their evil has come upon me. So Jonah also knows the history of Nineveh. So Nineveh was about 600 miles northeast of Israel. It would be modern-day Iraq. Um, it was one of the largest, most powerful cities of its day. It was a chief city in, in the Assyrian Empire. So the Assyrians were, were holding, uh, basically ruling and reigning, uh, very similar to the Roman Empire many, many years later. It was, a, it was a place of power, of violence, of oppression. And, and so Jonah, he, he sees no practical or theological reason to go to Nineveh. The Assyrians were ruthless. And he, he believed God would deal with them at some point. Being, a, being an Old Testament prophet, being someone who knows the scriptures inside and out, he knows that Nineveh is not a place that you take your first date. It's just not where you want to go. So he has all these things in his head. If you go and read Nahum, uh, the, the uh, minor prophet as well, the first uh, couple verses of Nahum, it already is talking about Nineveh being, being under God's judgment. And Jonah, being a good Bible guy, because he's an Old Testament prophet, knows the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards, he knows everything there is to know about Nineveh. And he's saying, why in the world would I go to this Gentile, evil place? There's no reason to go. So you're a little sympathetic with Jonah. You kind of, you sympathize with him a little. He's, God's coming, the word of God comes, and he says, okay, I want you to go to this place, I want you to preach against this place. And Jonah's just like, no, been there, done that, don't want anything to do with these people. But we have to keep digging a little bit further. Because as you keep looking at it, again, we're only looking at a few verses here. It's kind of setting up the whole book. And you're going to begin to understand who Jonah really is and what is really going on in these four short chapters. But notice the way that he actually flees from, from God. Notice the effort that he's making to flee from God. So verse 3, so he gets this call from God, I want you to go, I want you to preach against these Gentiles, I want you to go to this, this place that's, that's evil, that doesn't love me, doesn't worship me, doesn't know me, but I want you to go anyway. And in verse 3 he says, But Jonas, Jonas, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, now we could, you've probably, if you've been around the scriptures, been around the church, been around Jonah at all, veggie tales, whatever you're into, verse 3 you've probably read and go, okay, no big deal, what's going on here? He, he said, no, I'm not doing that, I'm going, getting on a boat, I'm, I'm going away, and eventually he ends up in the belly of a fish, okay? Pastor, who cares? But notice the, the detail that the, the writer of Jonah is, is going to, because here's the deal. First clue is that he already cues us in in verse 3 that he's not just going, you know what, God, here's the deal. i got a lot of things to do in my life. I'm a busy man. I'm a prophet of God. 
I've been called to serve you, but I, I'm, I have a busy schedule. I got mileage I need to turn in, and, and I just don't have time to go to Nineveh. Notice what he says. That's not what it says. This isn't inconvenient. This isn't, you know, I just don't have time. Notice what it says. It says in verse 3, but he fleed from the presence of the Lord. And he says it twice, away from the presence of the Lord. The, the, the writer wants us to clue in. There's something deeper going on here, and he's going to great lengths to get away from the mission that God has called him to. He says it twice in the text. Now, a typical Old Testament prophet wouldn't respond like this. Do you remember Elijah in 1 Kings uh, chapter 17? Notice how a typical Old Testament prophet would respond to the word of God coming to the prophet to go, I have a message for you. In Elijah uh, chapter uh, 1 Kings 17, in Elijah verse 2 says, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, return eastward to hide yourself from the from the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. Okay, I just want to highlight, I want you to see the two dichotomies here. You got Jonah, the word of the Lord comes to him. He says, nope, getting on a boat, I'm out of here. And you got Elijah, a typical Old Testament prophet, says, here's the word of God. God says, here's the mission he goes, gets up, goes, yep, I'm there. Let's go. Little different response, would you say? You should say, yes, pastor, I, I do say. Nod something, anything. I know it's 10 degrees out, but come on now. The Chiefs are playing this afternoon. Can we get excited about something? But notice also that he's going to Joppa. Now, what's the significance of Joppa? Well, Joppa is near modern-day Jaffa, which is, also, which is very close to Tel Aviv. It's a port city. And so Jonah's on land and he says, well, I'm going to go down to Joppa because Joppa's where I can catch a boat and go to Tarshish. Now, why is that significant? Because Joppa at the time was con- wasn't controlled by Hebrews at all. It had no presence of the people of God. This was a non-Hebrew controlled place. This didn't have anyone or anything that, that was connected to God and his people and his covenantal promises. He is going to great lengths to get away from this call of God, to get away from calling the Ninevites, calling the Assyrians to faith in God. He's going anywhere that he can that doesn't have any presence, any remnant of God around him at all. Now, what about the ship to Tarshish? What's the significance of that? Well, he goes, so he goes to Joppa, and then he gets on this boat to Tarshish. It's, it's, it's in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. So it's not, hey, I'll go to this port city over here. It's a few hundred miles away on the, le- on the east coast or the west coast. He's actually getting on a boat to go. How can I go in the exact opposite direction? It'd be the equivalent of this. We live in Kansas City, right? Okay, that was a slow nod. I mean, do we know where we are? Should we, should we just stop and pray? this Is this a trick question, Pastor? Yeah, I think so. So if we're in Kansas City, it'd be the equivalent of God saying, I want you to go to New York to the East Coast. And instead, you go, no, God, I'm going to L.A. to the West Coast. The exact opposite direction. That's where Tarshish is for Jonah. So so he's going to great lengths. I'm going to go to a place that doesn't have any presence of God's people or any Hebrews, and I'm also going to go to a place that's the exact opposite, hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Nineveh, away from Assyria. I don't want anything to do with these 
people in any way, shape, or storm. Storm? It's a little, yes, form. The storm's coming later in, the, in Jonah. But also, think about this, thousands of years ago, traveling by ship. That's not a nice you know, booze cruise to Mexico. Okay, you travel by ship, it's going to take months and months and months. And what we know about sh- traveling by boat in those, those days was that there's only a small window of time where the, where the water's actually calm enough for you to get where you need to go. And as we'll see, if you know the story at all, it gets pretty rocky, the water, right? Are you, are you tracking with me this morning? He is going to great links to run away from God. That I'm not going to go, I'm going to go to a place where there's no Hebrew presence. I'm going to go in the exact opposite direction on a boat. I'm going to actually go on a boat that there's no guarantee that I'm even going to live through the trip. But Jonah is running, and as the writer says in verse 3, he's fleeing from the presence of God. Because the word of God has come to Jonah, and he says, no thank you, I'm going in the exact opposite direction. And Jonah is a man who knows the Bible inside and out. He is a prophet of God. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he knows the scriptures. And one of the scriptures that he would probably have memorized and had in his heart and his head, and one you and I are very familiar with if you've been around the church or been around the Bible at all. Maybe you haven't. But in Psalm 139, David says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand should hold me. You can't escape from the presence of God. Like, you can't do it. Like, it doesn't matter who you are, you're a believer or not, you cannot escape from the presence of God. You can move to Africa, you can move to New York, you can move to LA, you can get on a ship and go to Tarshish, and it doesn't matter, God is still there with you. He knows who you are, Jonah. You go to the depths of the earth, you go to the heights of the heaven, God is still there. You're still living before the face of God. And yet, what is Jonah trying to do? Trying to escape from the presence of God. But it can't be done. So these three verses say a lot about who Jonah is and what he's doing. He's not just inconvenienced because he's scared of the mission. He's not just having a bad day or doesn't have enough time or... or you know, just busy. He is fling full on out of the presence of God. God, I want nothing to do with you or this mission. So, a little orientation. But what are the lessons that we can learn from this runaway prophet this morning as we kind of enter into uh, our series, especially right here at the, at the beginning? And it says a couple things to us. It says a couple things about Jonah. It says a couple things about about us. But I think the first thing that that it really shows very clearly is that it reveals the human condition. It reveals our own hearts. The word of God comes to Jonah and he says, I don't trust you. I I don't believe that that my happiness will, will come from following your orders, following your commands, following your promises. I don't believe what you're asking me to do makes any sense, so I'm not going to do it. 
So we, we get the news of cancer, we lose a job, we have a sick child, we lose a child, a death of a loved one, we, we can't get pregnant, addiction, and we wonder where God is. So, so God comes to us and says, this is who I am, this is what I'm like, this is the, the promises that I, that I have for you. But just like Jonah, the word comes and we say, no, thank you, we're all like Jonah. Because we'll figure out every way, every, every way that we can avoid the mission that God has called us to, right? Well, God, I mean, you know who these people are. We can't go there. We can't go to Nineveh. I mean, are you kidding me? Of all the people? I mean, look at our own people. Our own people have enough problems. They need to be called back to your faithfulness. They need to be, be, be called back to your love and your grace. Well, what in the world? Like, I'm, we're going to go, I'm going to go waste my time with these evil people? And so we'll come up with every excuse under the sun to not listen to God. To believe that our way is the best way. I love what Abraham Kuyper said. He was a, a journalist and a, a politician of sorts, a reformed theologian back in the day in, in the Netherlands. He says, Our heart is continually inclined to rebel against the Lord our God. So ready to rebel that, oh, so gladly were it but for a single day, we would take from his hands the reins from his supreme rule, imagining that we would manage things far better and direct them far more effectively than God. I mean, doesn't that, that summarize our, our hearts, that, that we really believe in our heart of hearts on, our, on, on, on most days that we could, if we could run things, if we could do things, that, that it would look like this, if we could grab the reins of the universe and grab the reins of my life, that I could do it better. But we know how absurd that is. And I think even Jonah, as we progressed through the book, knew how absurd that actually was. The, the, the God of universe, the God of the heavens and earth, the, the God of all wisdom, the God of all grace, the God of all power, the omniscient, uh, I can't say it, the sovereign omniscient, omniscient God of the universe. That, that somehow we would flex our muscles before him and say, I know what's best for my life. But it's the problem of sin, isn't it? It's, it's the problem that happened all the way back in the garden. You remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden and, and God comes to them and he just had one command. He just says, don't eat from this one tree. Tree of fruit, good and evil. Just don't eat from it. He doesn't give a lot of detail. He just says, just don't. You'll die. Just don't. That's all I ask, right? doesn't go into, hey, this is going to make your life better. This is going to you know, help you meet all your dreams. It, it, it doesn't say any of that. Just, I just have one simple command. Just don't, don't eat from that. Then later, Eve, you know, sees the fruit and says, well, this is nice, this is tasty, this is good for the eyes, you know, I mean, this is beautiful. And they eat, right? Just the one simple command, because what is that? I don't trust you, God. I don't believe you're after my happiness. I don't believe you're after my good. So we rebel. We say, no, thank you. And you see, that's what's happening to Jonah, and that's what happens to us. The word of God comes to us. God speaks to us, and we say, nope. It reveals our own hearts. It reveals who we really are. It reveals how we run from God. But it also, secondly, reveals how there is more than one way to run from God. There's more than one way to run from God. And and many years ago, excuse me, got a little frog in my throat. Many years ago, God really opened my eyes to some things in Scripture that, that really were really helpful for me and, and, and good for my own soul, but also just as I think about teaching and preaching and things, is that there is more than one way to run from God. Because what I mean by that is, isn't it just, well, there's people who love God and don't love God, and there's people who are sinning like crazy, and then you know, they're running from God, but then there's, there's people over here that just love God. There's no in-between, right? 
But what, when you read Romans, <clears throat> it's really eye-opening. In Romans chapter 18, I've, I've hinted at this verse many times. I've read it many times. But if you go down to Romans 8, not 18, it says that the, the, the wrath of God's being revealed against heaven, that there's this, this knowledge of God that just, when you go watch the sun come out, <clears throat> we watch the seasons, we know there's, there is a God. He, he's put it in our hearts. There's a, there's a knowledge of God for everyone that we're without excuse. Sorry, my voice is <clears throat> not working. <clears throat> And this would relate to, to people that, that, that don't know God. Like everyone under the sun is accountable before God. We're all without excuse. So in Romans 1.28 it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base, debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So, so what Paul's describing is the human condition before Christ. He's saying that the whole world is under God's wrath. They, they all have a knowledge of God. They're without excuse. And yet because they're, they're not trusting God, they're not believing in God, they're not, not worshiping Him, well, God just gives them over and they just become all of the things just described there. Haters of God, evil, gossips, all those things. They're just living out of their natural nature, their sin nature. That's the whole human race. What Paul says in in, uh, Ephesians 2, we're all carried along by the prince of the air, that we all just follow the desires of our hearts without God in the world, right? So this is really obvious. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, that's that's true. That's one way to run from God. It's just flat out not going to listen, immoral, evil, whatever. But if you keep reading in Romans, you also see that you can be religious and know the scriptures and still run from God. So in Romans chapter 2, Paul's calling out the Jews of his day in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So they have the knowledge and the truth. They know the scriptures. They know the commands. Verse 21. You then who teach others do not teach yourself. So we get the phrase, you don't practice what you preach. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Romans 1, we have people running from God very obviously, evil, immoral, don't want anything to do with God, we're going to worship the creation, not creator. But we also have people who know the scriptures inside and out, still running from that same God. Because you don't practice what you preach, you are leading people astray. You're not obeying me, you're not listening to me, just like Jonah did, who knew the scriptures backwards and forward. And wanted nothing to do with God. Jesus in, in John chapter 5, this text always haunts me. He's talking to the Pharisees who know the scriptures inside and out. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 39 says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is that they, they bear witness about me. 
Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. You can know the scriptures inside and out and still not come to the God that is revealed in those same scriptures, Jesus Christ. That from Genesis to Revelation reveals the life and the death and the, the work of God in Christ from, from eternity past to eternity forward. The whole thing's about him, and yet you can know them backwards and forth. You can quote scripture, and you can have mugs that have verses on them, and you can blast people with the scriptures, and yet you might not even come to the one that it's all about to have life and eternal life. So, so you can run from God by being just flat-out immoral, flat-out evil, not, nothing to do with God. And you can also know God and know his word and still be running from him in the same way. And it's all over Scripture. Remember the prodigal son, Luke 15? Great story. Right? Just, just like Jonah. Some say that the, the story of Jonah and the prodigal son are almost exactly the same. You kind of walk through them, and we'll, we'll talk about, about that more in the, in the future. But you know the prodigal son in Luke 15? You got the younger brother, right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Yeah, let's go crazy, right? Give me the inheritance, Dad, right? That would have been a slap in the face of the father. You're not dead yet. You get the inheritance after the father dies. He wants the inheritance now. So he goes, goes off, lives with the pigs, right? Things don't go well. Uh, didn't, you know, hit the slot machine hard enough. Didn't get the money he needed, right? So he comes back with his tail between his legs. What does the father do? He runs out to the, to the son and he hugs him and kisses him and throws a huge feast that involved tons and tons of bacon and pork and meat. And then who else do we have in the story? The older brother. Father, I've been with you since day one. I've done everything you've said I should do. I've followed your commands. And your young son goes out, goes crazy, steals your inheritance, and he comes back, and you're throwing him a party? Are you kidding me right now? So you can run from God by flat out being disobedient. I don't want anything to do with you like the younger brother. You could also run from God by being like the older brother and not able to enjoy and rejoice in the grace that the Father's already given. He should be celebrating, right? And I believe all of us have a little bit of the older and the younger and a little bit of Jonah in all of us, right? I know if you grew up in the church... I can almost guarantee you, you have a little older brother in you. Because it's, it's hard to, to, to just, like, this is all I've known. This is where I've always been. It's hard to rejoice when God's grace comes, right? It's like, hey, I've done everything right, but this person over here doesn't seem to be doing anything right. He's shooting heroin in his eyeballs. He comes to Christ, and it's just like, hey, what about me? And a lot of times we think that testimony is just worthless and junk. And I just want to say, please, it's the greatest testimony in the world. I didn't have that luxury. Believe me, it wasn't easy growing up. Like, you should celebrate that. All I've known is your grace. All I've known is your care, Father. Praise God, all these people coming to Christ. Amen. Come into the family, right? But if you came to Christ maybe later, you might have a little bit of younger brother in you, too. A little, little wild child in you. That's me. That, that I, don't, I, I, didn't always, I didn't always grow up with that. I didn't always have the, the security of, of faith and, and Christian w- w- teaching around me, right? So, so, so it's easy to kind of shun those that are religious, right? And go like, just get your act together. Like, well, really? It's all, come on. Stop being so conservative and buttoned up. And we sway from, I don't need you, God, to I don't need you by following your commands and I'm a good person. You need to bless me and you need to shower me with your, your grace. And so all of us can avoid God by being religious. We can also 
avoid God by being irreligious. And you see, until Jonah and you and me begin to grapple with our own sin and see what we've been redeemed from and know that we have to fully rely on the mercy and grace of God, we're going to keep avoiding God just like Jonah did and not listen to his call to go to Nineveh, that we're not going to be changed by his, his grace. Because if Jonah had any inkling that this was the God of mercy, the God of compassion that came into his life and said, said, said you are my child, you would go anywhere and do anything if you really understood the mercy of God. Because you know your whole life is a gift of grace. You know that anything you have is all God's grace, all God's, God's mercy. But, but if we haven't seen our own sin and the evil that really lurks within, and, and, and we take that for granted, whether you've been in the church your whole life or you just came to Christ last week, maybe you're not even a Christian, there's no way for us to really marvel at the grace and mercy that's been given to us. We take it for granted. We don't see how, how great a cost God paid for us through his son on the, on the cross. We don't see that, that Jesus himself took on the wrath and anger of God, that Jesus himself took our place so that we wouldn't have to die, so we wouldn't have to go to hell, so we wouldn't have to be separated forever, that he would bring us into the family, that Jesus took all of that for us. And if we don't contemplate that deeply enough, or we don't think on that long and hard for the rest of our days, grace is, is, means nothing to and so we'll just become like that older brother. Really? You're throwing a party? I, I've been here the whole time, and I don't get a stinking party. Where's my party? I'm the good kid. But realizing it's all mercy, it's all grace. One of, one of the great examples I, I, I love in Scripture that, that really, I think, highlights this in such profound ways is in Luke chapter um, 7. You might be familiar with the story. It's Jesus is eating with a, a woman of the streets. This Pharisee invites him into uh, his home, and a woman from the streets comes in. And uh, in, in Luke chapter 7, verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought in an alabaster flask of ointment. And, and if you know the story, she breaks that, that uh, flask of ointment perfume and wipes it all over Jesus' feet and kisses his head and kisses his feet. Now, kissing the feet, okay, I mean, that, that was just gross, just with clean feet. But imagine a first century rabbi walking through the dust in the streets of Palestine. Blood and dirt and the smell, who knows. But, but here she is, she, she lays her life down at the feet of Jesus and, and, and showers him with his, her life savings. And loves him. And then as he's sitting there, I love what Jesus does. This. He does a Jesus juke. He tells a parable. So the Pharisee's sitting there, and they got this woman from the street. She's pouring out his love for him, and the Pharisee's sitting there. And he's just thinking, oh, high and mighty, I know the scriptures, and I'm pure. And then here's what he says. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? The Pharisee answers, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, this may got really awkward in this moment. Um, you probably don't want to do this with house guests, but um, Jesus says, do you see this woman? 
I entered her house. You gave me no water for my feet. She, was, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in. Those who know they've been forgiven much, love much. Those that have seen the grace and the mercy found in Christ and marvel at it, love God much, love each other much. When you understand how big that debt was, that's why Jesus is using that parable. He's saying, look at these two debts. Look, at, it's been forgiven. He's, and if we really think about the debt that has been forgiven against us, that we are children of God now, that we are new creations in Christ, that our sin debt has been paid past, present, and future, that we have the righteousness of Christ, the, the moral record of Christ is now ours. We've been clothed with him as, as if we've never sinned in our whole lives. We've been adopted into the family of God. We've been justified by faith. All the language that the scripture uses, that we are his kids forever now and forever, that we have an inheritance in heaven, that he already has a place for us. We're already seated in the heavenly realms, and he also has a, some kind of mansion ready for us. I don't know how all that works. When you begin to, to realize the depth and the payment that he, he paid, you begin to marvel at grace every single day, that whatever comes into your life, you don't just hold a finger up to God and you say, thank you, God, I'm just so happy to be in the game. I'm just happy to be part of the family. Because everything I have wasn't owed to me. And yet you gave me everything. So is there any way we can know if we're running from God this morning? Is there any way, as, as Tim Keller calls, to know if the penny, the gospel penny hasn't dropped for us yet? And you might have got one of these on the, on the way in this morning. Um, I, I've shared this with the church a few times over the years. It's been a while. Well, this is a thing Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, he's not a pastor there anymore, but um, doing some writing and some other things, but um, he wrote up this little thing called Religion Versus the Gospel. And this has been such a gift to me as well. When I begin to understand, can, am I running from God by being religious? Or thinking God owes me something because I'm a pastor? Or am I swaying to the other side? Am I the, the younger brother? And it's, there is a difference between being religious and, and, and walking in gospel in line with the gospel, as, as Galatians says, Galatians 2. So there should be, oh, that, that's little, but you can read it on here. That's why I gave it to you. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. That's what religion says. I'm accepted, therefore I obey. That's what the gospel says. Motivation is based on fear and insecurity. The gospel says motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. Gospel says, I obey God to get God to delight in and resemble Him. Religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself, since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. The Gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know all my punishment fell on Jesus, and that while God may allow this for my training, He will exercise His fatherly love within my trial. Religion says, when I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it is critical, is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats of that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. But the gospel says, when I'm criticized, I struggle, 
But it is not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. Religion says my prayer life consists largely of petition and only heats up when I'm in a time of need. Amen? My main purpose in prayer is control of the environment. But the gospel says my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. Religion says my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel humble, but not confident. I feel like a failure. But when the gospel comes to us, my self-view is not based on my moral achievement. In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful and lost, yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad that he had to die for me, and I'm so loved that he was glad to die for me. Big difference. This leads me to deep humility and confidence at the same time. My identity, religion says, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am, and so I look down on those I perceive as lazy anymore. But the gospel says, my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I am saved by sheer grace, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace am I what I am. There's a huge chasm between religion and the gospel, what Christianity is all about. And maybe you find yourself swaying between those two things. I know I do probably many of those. Amen, amen, amen. Yep, yep, yep. That we see God only as a cosmic ATM that gives me what I want but not one who I enjoy and delight in on a daily basis. One who I see his grace and mercy in more full measure each and every day. And so um, a few days ago, I don't know if that was this week or last week, I, I get the days mixed up, but we, we gave out a little bit of a hospitality challenge this, this, this year. Just a simple challenge to the church to say, how can we be more hospitable individually and as families and as a church to other people uh, that, that don't know Christ and, and who know Christ. And, and so it's just a simple thing. I said, hey, you, you guys eat 21 meals a week. Um, probably give or take a few, up or, up or down. That's three meals a day, seven days a week. That's 21 meals in a month. That's 84 meals. Could we use one of those meals to invite someone into our life or around the table to, to, to be with them, to show them grace, to get to know them, to build a friendship with them? And not some kind of weird bait and switch and say, hey, let's have pizza. And then let me tell you about the bread of life. I mean, nothing weird like that. But to genuinely love and serve, you can use that if you like. It's very effective. It's actually not. But what does hospitality look like because grace and mercy has, been, has come to us? Who, who are the Ninevites? Who are the Assyrians that we need to have in our lives? But it's only going to happen when the, when the gospel penny drops in our hearts and our lives. They will always make excuses. Well, they're like this, they're like that. I don't, you know, I, I'm not comfortable but my, my prayer is that God would use his, his word, his spirit in our lives, just like Jonah, to, to see and reveal those places where, where maybe the gospel hasn't gotten deep enough. It hasn't have enough deep enough roots yet. So, so take that little paper. If you don't have one, just let me know. I can email it to you. It's a, and just, I, I would cut it up, and, and um, the one I have has two things on it. But you could cut it and put it in your Bible. 
just come back to it. Are there, are there places where you see this happening in your own heart, like, like where you're being criticized or, or where you just feel like I'm not measuring up to some standard or you feel like your, your prayer life is really dry. It's just all about I need this, I need this, but not really enjoying God. Keep, keep tabs on those things this week and the next seven weeks as we look at, at Jonah together. Because my, my belief is that just like Jonah's was called to Nineveh, we're called to go and make disciples here in Kansas City and beyond. And that call hasn't changed for 2,000, 2000 years. And the, and the good news that, that makes all that possible is that the one who kept his mission and the one who didn't fail in any way is Jesus Christ. And every week we have the, the opportunity and the privilege to take the Lord's Supper. And Jesus had a mission to, to live and to die and to rise again for, for his glory, but also for our good, to, to redeem a people for himself. And he didn't back down at all. He said, yes, Father, I'm going into the den of the lion. I'm going into darkness. I'm going to be separated for my people, but I'm willing and, and able, and I'm going. So Jesus, in many ways, is, is, is a much better Jonah. The one who resisted, the one who said, nope, not going there. But Jesus was willing to die for you, for me. That wasn't Jonah's call. He wasn't the Savior. But he was to point to the Savior that was to come. And so I, I want you to celebrate that this morning. If you're a believer in Christ and, and, and you're trusting in the, in the person and work of Christ, please come and celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, with us. Uh, the way we take uh, communion is we have two lines in the front. We break off a piece of the bread. We dip it in the cup. Um, if you have any kind of allergies or gluten-free things going on, uh, we have some bread in the middle. You can take that as well. And, and if, you're, if you're not uh, a Christian, uh, you're not a believer in Christ this morning, we just ask that you'd stay seated. It's kind of a family deal. But if you're our um, contemplate that, thinking that. It feels like God has you know, brought you here for a reason this morning. Maybe you feel like, Joan, I'm just running away. I'm not sure what I'm running from, but I'm curious about this stuff. Um, please come and talk to me. I'd love to chat with you or one of our elders. I'd love to pray with you, chat with you, answer any questions we, we can. We have some prayers in our city life that you can think on and, and mull over as well. We've all been there. And, and, and hey, even on our best days, we still run. So um, you're in good company. Uh, so with that, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for Jonah. And it would be really easy for us this morning to, to just go, whoa, she's Jonah, what, what are you doing? You don't, why aren't you listening to God? And yet in our honest moments, we're just like Jonah. We struggle every day, God, to say yes and amen to your word and your promises and what you desire of us. That we believe our happiness can be found outside of you on a daily basis. So God, have mercy on us, forgive us. May we be honest this morning, may we be honest this week and lay those things before you. Hey, God, would you reveal this week, as we look at even this little, little chart, maybe be a helpful exercise, just to think of the ways in which we're falling into the trap of religion and not marveling and resting in and being grounded in the gospel. Would you show those things to us? And then give us the courage to repent of those things, maybe even tell someone else where we're struggling so they could pray for us, even as we, we gather in city groups this week and, and think about these things and mull these things over, that we could hold each other accountable, that you've, you've called us not to, not to religion, not to, to, to do our own thing and be our own person, but to, to fall full-heartedly our whole lives on the grace and mercy of God in Christ. So help us, oh God. Thank you for Jonah to reveal all these things to us. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, God, may we be reminded of the God who is the better Jonah, who fulfilled his call, who fulfilled his mission for our, his glory and our good. We love you, Lord. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Come and celebrate.